This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. We're going to now transition to a slightly different subject, though related to baptism. Um, So, Are churches that practice infant baptism true churches, number one? And number two, how should we understand as Baptists where we fit in the broader Christian tradition? Well, those are two great questions, and um, they are not new questions at all. Um, Particularly in the 17 and 1800s, particularly the 1800s in England and America, the question of... is, is the Baptist church, because it practices immersion, the only true church or not? And that all other churches, Protestant churches, were not really churches. And that came from the landmark movement in America that began in England in some ways and has continued to the present day uh, through the Church of Christ and uh, other landmark Baptist churches. So uh, the question is, um, if a church doesn't practice credo baptism, is it a true church? And I answer this question in in this way: um, Our the Reformation, out of the Reformation, and in the theology of our Baptist forefathers, the identification of a true church of Jesus Christ is that it has three marks that are biblical. The uh, Faithful preaching of the Word of God or the whole counsel of God. Secondly, the proper administration of the ordinances, which baptism comes under. And the faithful or proper administration of church discipline. That these three marks identify a true uh, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you consider that, uh, what we find in in our present day and in recent couple of hundred years um, history is that there are many Baptist churches that do not preach the whole counsel of God nor practice church discipline faithfully. And I would have a much uh, greater tendency to say they are not true churches than a Peter Baptist church who preaches the whole counsel of God and practices faithful church discipline, and that they have an error in their doctrine of baptism, but that does not disqualify them from being a true church of Christ. And I believe that uh, a Peter Baptist church that uh, has two of those marks, the very important, preaching the whole counsel of God, out of which everything comes anyway, 
and the uh, and the fact that they practice faithful church discipline, uh, they they have a step ahead of being called a true church than a Baptist church that doesn't teach the whole counsel of God and doesn't practice church discipline. So yes, I would count a confessionally reformed Peter Baptist church a true church, even though it has an error in the practice of infant baptism. Uh, for those churches who practice credo baptism, but lacking the other two marks, I would question if they are true churches. And in fact, having written a book against pedo baptism, um, uh, who I still count, whether they count me that way or not, I count friends in Christ. I have sometimes counseled church members or friends who have moved away to seek a Reformed Baptist church first and or help plant one there if they can't find one, to figure some way to help start one. And if they can't do that, or until that happens, to uh, unite themselves to a good Presbyterian or um, Protestant Reformed church, um, for instance, Joel Beakey's sort of uh, church, until the Reformed Baptist option opens itself. So what we need, and, and, and so I would, I would answer that question by saying, yes, I do believe there are pedo-baptist churches that are true churches, and there are many Southern Baptist churches that are not, not just Southern Baptist either, independent Baptist, uh, fundamental Baptist, you know, all kinds. There, um, if, if we're not preaching the whole counsel of God faithfully, you can't build any kind of church. The second question, oh, excuse me. Okay, I was going to go to the second question. How do we fit in the broader Christian tradition? Well, that's a debate among Baptists uh, in general in America. Some trace their ancestry or tradition to the Anabaptist that uh, arose during, uh, especially during the Reformation time under Menno Simons. Uh, from which we get the name Mennonites in the Anabaptist tradition. But it is distinctive that in the early 1600s, when uh, Reformed Baptists began to make their uh, appearance, that they denied any connection with the Anabaptist strain and tradition. Uh, rather, they were uh, English separatists. Uh, some of them... Uh, had found the Reformed faith uh, in in um, in the Netherlands, where they had to escape persecution for a while, and came back to England. and uh, And the early English Baptist churches were established uh, out of uh, separatist and independents, who uh, and and some Congregationalists who uh, uh, could no longer um, worship in the Anglican communion or or the uh, congregational communion. So it's a separate tradition from the Anabaptists. And while they may have believers' baptism in common, um, preaching the whole counsel of God, practicing church discipline faithfully, uh, that came from the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, into Baptist life. And we can see in history that there were independent groups that uh, I would not call Anabaptists because of their better theology, 
like the Waldenses and the Albigenses and others over the period of time that were independents. Um, some Baptists claimed them, but some of them still practiced infant baptism. Nevertheless, there was an independent strain of uh, solid churches. And, um, and so our tradition is not with uh, Anabaptists. It is more out of the Reformed faith, out of the Protestant faith, which we uh, saw was lacking in terms of the ordinances. And remember, John Owen and, and uh, John Bunyan were dear friends, and they preached in each other's pulpits. And, and John Owen at one time said, I wish I could preach like the tinker, you know, just one time. <laughs> and uh, so the collegiality between uh, some Baptist and some uh, established churches was there, even though there was great opposition also from the Presbyterians uh, and Anglicans against Baptists. And that carried over into America in the, in the Virginia colony, uh, which was Episcopalian uh, uh, and in Maryland under Roman Catholics. Uh, there were Baptist ministers that were uh, removed from their districts for preaching the gospel in a home or jailed. Well, uh, I'm certain that both of us would agree that the answer to this next question is yes, baptism <laughs> is a means of grace. So uh, I will answer that question. But can you uh, elaborate to our audience how baptism is a means yeah. of grace? Well, a means of grace does not, com does not um, communicate or infuse grace in its use. That's the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics and Baptists and some Protestants. There is no infusion of grace from the ordinances uh, or the sacraments, if you wish to use that word, into the user or the believer in the use of those uh, means. Uh, the Bible pre read and preached is the means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. The uh, worship of the local church, which is instituted by revelation in the regulative principle of worship by Jesus Christ and his apostles, is a means of grace whereby we worship God, uh, hearing the word of God read, hearing it explained, praying together, uh, singing together, uh, fellowshipping with uh, the body of Christ, which is another means of grace. But when we talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper as means of grace, we're talking about uh, not at some kind of infusion in the use of them of grace, but rather they are preaching the grace of God. They are preaching the gospel to us. And those who believe the gospel are thereby strengthened in their faith in the proclamation of the gospel through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, baptism is a means of grace because it conveys the, um, the gospel of Jesus in that he was uh, crucified and buried uh, for our sins, and he rose from the dead to walk in newness of life for our justification and salvation. 
And that is taught very clearly in uh, Romans chapter 6, where uh, the baptism of Jesus, whether you consider it to be uh, his baptism on the cross, that is undergoing the baptism of death, which is a word he used concerning himself and spoke to the apostles, as a going into death of being buried. Remember the gospel is uh, in First John, I mean First Corinthians 15, uh, the gospel is that he was buried, he was crucified for our sins according to the scripture. And he was buried, that's what Paul says, and on the third day he arose again from the dead according to the scriptures. That gospel, the gospel is about him and his accomplishments, especially upon the, his death and resurrection, uh, to bear the punishment for our sins and to rise to new life. And that parallel, uh, whether it's in the soul uh, in Romans 6, where we are buried with Christ in baptism, uh, and raised to walk in newness of life in his resurrection, whether that's speaking of um, the moment of faith whereby we are joined to him and his death is our death and his burial is our burial to our old man and his resurrection is our regeneration to new life, whether it's that or uh, our faith in his death as a, as a baptism into death and resurrection. However we put that, baptism preaches that to us. And to the, to the new disciple and Christian, we are not only being baptized as a symbol of cleansing from our sin, uh, the washing away of our sins, as it were, but also of union with Christ in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, so that as we are raised from the immersion uh, we also walk in newness of life as he did. So uh, as a means of grace, when we are baptized and when we watch someone else being baptized, we're seeing a symbol of the gospel, a symbol of Christ and his work for us. And that strengthens our faith. Like reading the scriptures on his death and resurrection strengthens our faith. And the same thing goes for the Lord's Supper, that it is a proclamation that our Lord Jesus Christ has come and was crucified, dead and buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and that we're to do this in remembrance of him, that is, his person and who it is that was crucified for us, and what the crucifixion meant for us, and what his resurrection meant for us, so that now um, we are, as it were, taking the supper. We are rehearsing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our soul. And as we believe the truths of Christ represented in the supper, in his body and, his, uh, body and blood, our faith is strengthened. As we hear the same way that we hear someone preach on the death and resurrection of Christ and the Holy Spirit um, applies it to our mind and heart and our faith is strengthened and, and more committed than ever to follow him as Lord and to follow him even into persecution as Lord. So it is a means of grace. It also marks out those who are disciples of Christ. That's what happened in John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, and the 
apostolic baptism. Uh, it was a public identification with Christ, and, um, and uh, it showed the world that this person is now a follower of the Son of God. So as a means of grace, in, particularly in worship, as an element of worship, um, it preaches the gospel to us, and our faith is strengthened because we, we see the gospel. Well, Dr. Malone, we've been talking about uh, baptism a lot thus far in this episode. Hopefully the answer is clear to our listeners already, but why does baptism matter so much? Why should we take it seriously? Why have we been talking about it so much? Well, because our Lord Jesus Christ took it seriously. And he, uh, when he made disciples, having made more disciples and baptized more disciples than John, it shows that he also preached to repent and be baptized, as John did, as Peter did on the day of Pentecost. And so if it matters to Christ, that's enough for it to matter to us. So it was instituted by him as a mark of discipleship, an outward sign of being engrafted into him, not just cleansing, but being united to him in the likeness of his death and resurrection. And and he wanted us to be baptized to remind us of that fact. And that is when we are born again, when we uh, come to faith in Christ, he wants us to remember that in baptism, it illustrates uh, that union with him in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection to walk in newness of life. And so to relegate it to Christian liberty or <clears throat> to an unimportant uh, part of the new covenant or uh, doctrines um, is actually denying the importance of it to Christ. And, and therefore we need to, uh, if we believe the scripture is inspired and authoritative and sufficient for er our faith and practice, uh, we have to take it as seriously as Jesus did, as seriously as Paul did and uh, Peter and, and the rest of the apostles. It's a New Testament positive institution under the new covenant. And that's all it needs to be, to be very important to us. One of the things that's discouraged me at times in way back in the late 70s, even to the present day, is to see discussions of baptism uh, or positions that are out there that somehow in one way or another, um, relegate it to Christian liberty or a secondary matter. And uh, to do that, for instance, to pragmatically serve in a particular church that has a doctrine of baptism uh, or in a particular denomination that has a doctrine of baptism and to uh, practice the practice of that church or denomination uh, by saying, well, you know, we're all baptized. It doesn't really matter. And what's more important is the gospel. What's more important is sanctification. What's more important is the doctrines of grace or whatever it may be. So I can pragmatically baptize infants uh, because that's a much lesser issue than these other great things. It's basically opening the door uh, to uh, undermine one's the belief in the sufficiency of scripture. And I believe that when you follow that 
hermeneutic, that pragmatic hermeneutic, it eventually will come out in other aspects of your doctrine and practice in life and ministry. So um, we have to uh, take it seriously uh, and, and have a clear conscience. One of the problems in the old PCA or PCUS, which Morton Smith brought out in his, um, in his documentation of the decline of the old uh, Southern Presbyterian denomination, it's a book called How Has the Gold Become Dim? A great book. And what it shows is that the uh, local churches cease to uh, take seriously the confession of faith in their institution of elders, that the presbyteries cease to examine well and take seriously uh, the commitment of uh, the ministers in the presbytery to the confession of faith before they were admitted. They didn't do that well. And in the denomination at large, which remember, it's a church. It, the church is the general assembly and the synod of the state or whatever, and the local presbytery, that uh, by uh, taking a, a position of expediency toward baptism and the Lord's Supper at the top level, which came down in the PCUS to the local church level. Um, I remember taking, in, when I was in college, a Presbyterian on an uh, intervarsity retreat uh, pastor served the Lord's Supper to the intervarsity people there at the retreat. But it's, a, it's an ordinance of the local church. It's not meant to be uh, spread around promiscuously to any kind of group that gathers and says, I want to have the Lord's Supper. But it was taken in an expedient way, and we did not guard the uh, beliefs of the eldership so that the denomination declined doctrinally uh, through expediency and ultimately became, um, since I was a Presbyterian back then, I believe apostate. So uh, expedience must, um, must go by the wayside and we have a clear conscience. You know, when we take our vows to become um, a Presbyterian or a Baptist minister, we usually have a confession of faith that we're saying we believe as an example of our faith. And in the seminaries, and particularly in Presbyterian churches, uh, you are vowing to teach in accordance with and not contrary to the confession of the church. But the, uh, the expediency of the Southern Presbyterian Church to allow people in that did not conscientiously believe the confession, let them lie and say, I accept the confession, uh, led to the downfall of that denomination. And uh, out of that arose, thanks, thank the Lord, the PCA. So uh, I guess that's enough of that, but I, we have to take seriously our vows before God of what we profess to believe and not be uh, pragmatic about it. Well, uh, our second to the last question is, what does baptism as a sign point toward? <laughs> well, there's so much, isn't there? Um, it is a sign of our present union with the Lord Jesus Christ that is unbreakable. 
uh, and, and, and of his continued union with us uh, through thick and thin, even though we should fall into sin, he is still in union with us. And we are in union with him. And it's that, that, that union with Christ in baptism, uh, with his death, burial, and resurrection, that encourages us on the way in sanctification, that he will not leave us or forsake us, that he will uh, present us faultless before his throne with great joy, that the work he began in us, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ. And baptism is a sign of that. Um, and then uh, we, of union with Christ, but also of the future world, as he was raised to walk in newness of life with the promise of our future resurrection from the dead. Um, so baptism represents that. One of the, one of the interesting things about Paul's uh, testimony in Philippians chapter uh, uh, three is that he keeps talking about the day of resurrection, a bodily resurrection that he may attain unto that because that was continually in his mind as a Christian now. And, and it is what spurred him on. Uh, I have not attained, he said, but I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So baptism and its uh, symbol of, of union with Christ and of cleansing from sin uh, is a prospect of that future resurrection from the dead uh, in Christ and that we are to therefore, uh, when we see someone baptized or we are baptized, we, we are to keep in mind that the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sins or the cleansing of sin. It is a promise. The baptism illustrates the promise of Jesus' faithfulness to raise us from the dead and bring us safely into his eternal kingdom to see him face to face. Amen. Amen. Well, here's our last question for you. Okay. Someone, someone comes up to you and they say that they desire to be baptized. How should we approach this situation and what questions might we ask this person? Well, if you're a pastor who is asked, uh, and obviously uh, we believe, uh, Baptists believe only those authorized persons uh, by the church are to baptize people. Uh, if you're a pastor who is asked, I would immediately ask him to tell me about his, his or her beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, how they believe that they are saved by him and united to him, and try to understand the content of their profession of faith, and also about their life. You uh, remember that uh, uh, the people that are to be baptized are not to be those who just profess faith in Christ, but in their life, there is nothing that disqualifies them uh, from uh, taking on his name or averting the foundation is what our confession says. But anyway, I would ask them about who Jesus Christ is, what his, what, what he did, who he was, what he accomplished on the cross, what his resurrection means. Um, do they understand uh, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone? Um, and um, 
and, and ask them questions about the gospel. Then I would ask um, if they had been baptized before and what its circumstances were. So many people were baptized as children, uh, not infants particularly, but in Baptist life early as children. And some of them, many of them now profess that they were not really saved then. So I'd want to know about all that, uh, as well as their credible confession of faith. And meet with me several times to explain the doctrines of the gospel and what discipleship means and what a holy life is and and how Christ conceives the church as important in the life of a Christian. And um, if, if they're visiting my church, I would encourage them to come to the membership class where we have an opportunity to teach them the things they may not have been taught or to correct things they've been taught wrongly so that they understand basically the gospel. And I'm saying the law and the gospel in their proper relation to each other and what it means to commit yourself to Christ as a disciple and a church member and uh, put upon them uh, the, uh, not the qualification through works to be baptized, but make sure they understand what baptism represents. And that is a death to self and a new life to God. Hmm. Well, Dr. Malone uh, is the author, as I previously mentioned, of The Baptism of Disciples Alone. If you want to find more material on this topic from him, you can purchase his book and read and dig into this topic at a greater length. But Dr. Malone, uh, you have been very gracious to us to give us your time and to give us your thoughts and your study on this topic. So we want to thank you for joining the podcast today. Glad I could come. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.